Getting back to our speaker today, Paul, Dr. Jensen, it is uh, such an honor to have you here with us today. Paul has been a mentor of mine since uh, about 91. I think we met in the late 80s and then uh, hooked up at the beginning of 91. Uh, Lynn Mallory, who unfortunately uh, is no longer with us, passed away a while back, hooked us up. He said, you need to connect with Paul Jensen. And so I did. And I was taking a class at Fuller Theological Seminary where he was teaching a class. And he was also doing a lot of work with ninth, ninth quarter students from Andrews University out here in the Pacific Union. And so we hooked up. And then the conference uh, hired his organization, the Leadership Institute, to, uh, to work with their Christian leaders, work with pastors in this conference. And uh, specifically then it was the Baby Boomer Buster Project. We were trying to, what can we do to reach out to boomers and busters? And uh, so... Uh, after a long journey, Pastor Ken uh, joined about the same time I did uh, with the journey that meets up at Pine Springs Ranch. Some of you are familiar with that. We have three retreats a year, and uh, Paul's organization leads us out in that. And basically, it's the premise that real life-changing ministry comes out of the overflow of the Christian leader, out of intimacy with God. And that's what they're all about. And so when we get together, they're always making sure that we're connecting with God. They give us time to do that. And then we talk about our ministry and leadership and how that's all impacted by that. I'm envious of Paul of many things, but one in particular is that when he was ordained, he was ordained by H HMS Richard Sr. And, uh, yeah, see what I mean? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know. Uh, although you were there on my ordination day. So I, it's kind of like the laying on of hands, you know, kind of a thing. I'll, I'll take that. Uh, but uh, Paul is also a credentialed minister uh, through our Pacific Union Conference and uh, uh, born and raised in the Adventist Church and just a, a wonderful man of God. And I will just say, I said this in the first service, Paul absolutely loves the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength and his neighbor as himself. I experienced that personally, and I can testify over the last 20 years that I have been the, the beneficiary of that overflow of your intimacy with God into my life and so many other pastors' lives. And so I've asked him to come today as we've been talking about the Jesus Creed. We've been talking about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Paul, you may remember uh, maybe in a sermon I, I talked about the collapse of space and time and a friend who wrote his whole doctorate on that. Well, this is that friend. And so he's going to talk to us a little bit about that because we all feel that, that pressure of that collapse of space and time in our lives and how that, that really threatens our intimacy with God and our relationship with him and our love for others. And so, Paul, I'm Dr. Jensen, thank you so much for being here with us today, and we're really looking forward to the words you have to share with us. Thank you. Thank you, John. Um, just call me Paul, okay? Let's, let's be on first name basis uh, in our time together today. Uh, I want to uh, register my first uh, uh, statement of appreciation for John and Ken. Uh, I won't be able to be at the, the supper tonight to express that. So I would say that you have two of the most amazing lead and associate pastors anywhere that I've been around and trained. And the rest of your staff as well. I don't want to exclude you, but I'm just getting to know some of, some of you uh, more recently. And um, since 1993, to be able to have followed this church from a distance, through first, Mick Thurber was part of the, that project, along with you, John and, and Ken. 
And then uh, Clarence Schilt came and was a part of that. And so I visited here several times, most recently at uh, Kristen uh, Morey's and, and Casey Luskin's um, uh, wedding. And I saw Rochelle, and I haven't seen Mike, Benny yet. So there's some people here that I've connected with in the past. It's good to be together uh, again and to reconnect uh, with those of you that uh, I have had the privilege of connecting with. This morning... I want us to uh, think in terms of the rhythms that John mentioned, that Jesus lived, his engagement with people, amazing, but then also his withdrawal from people, for communion with his Father and rest. And then a lot of times he'd grab his disciples and associates, his apprentices, with him. And they'd go with him. I want to talk about those rhythms, but more importantly, the the passion. The awareness of the depth and the width and the height of the love of God. That drove and fueled those rhythms. And I do, yes, want to talk a little bit about how those rhythms get quenched through the altered experiences of space and time that we all experience. And then to look at how is it that we can pray with the fire of God. The fire of the love of God. And then I want to close this by actually commissioning all of us to spread the fire. The Apostle Paul says it's the love of Christ that constrained him and constrains us. And it's the passion and the love of God that fills and fuels your mission to love God and love people. I have a passionate four-year-old grandson by the name of Christian. Uh, Isaac, it's the same name as as your son, I discovered. Uh, He was actually here in first service. Uh, Earlier uh, in the summer, he was at a dental appointment at Loma Linda University Dental School. And he got up in the chair and the dentist uh, attending him uh, got them all fixed up and tied down and all the, all the bibs and all of that. And all of a sudden, she just gazed at Christian and agrees very much. Of course, I'm biased. You are so cute, she said. And in fact, she said it again. You are so cute. And Christian looks up and says, I'm not cute. I'm handsome. And she said, you are absolutely right. You are handsome. That's passion. That's passion. And though he was a bit tied down, it didn't constrain his passion about his sense of who he was. And so today I'd like us to think in terms of The fire of God's love. And as we do that, 
I would like to. I thought I brought my reading glasses with, but I did I? Did I not? Thank you, John. Like I said, you've got a pastor like no other. Today I want us to stand in a long tradition that you that views passion as the fire of love, the fire of God's love. A woman who lived in the mid-1300s, is named Catherine of Siena, wrote these words. Why then, eternal Father, did you create this creature of yours? In your light, you saw yourself compelled by the fire of your charity to give us being In spite of the evil we would commit against you, eternal Father, it was fire then that compelled you, O unutterable love, even though you saw all the evils that your creatures would commit, you acted as if you did not see and set your eye only on the beauty of your creature. Not that sin was hid from you, but you concentrated on the love because you are nothing but a fire of love, crazy over what you have made. Have you ever felt that God was crazy over you and me because he made us and then redeemed us by the cross. Catherine of Siena is going back to a long tradition of God as the smitten suitor, the one who pursues his beloved. That goes all the way back to the long tradition in Israel of pathos. Yahweh is a God of pathos in his passion for us. And then the fire of God's love in Jesus, and especially in his desire, as we look at Mark 3, 13 through 15. Jesus, it says, went up the mountain, according to Mark, And called to him those whom he wanted. He wanted. Do you feel that Jesus wants you? Do you feel ever on the outside? And the people who are really wanted by God are not where you're at. I must confess to you that this is a place of inner tension at times for me. Does God really want me? Does God really want you? It says that he appointed those he wanted, these 12. He appointed them to be with him. 
Does God want to be with you? Far more than you want to be with God? The compassion that we repeatedly see embodied in Jesus, tangible care for people, and in the parables he told about good Samaritans and prodigals, we see present this passionate care for others. And then we don't want to pass up the Apostle John, who in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, verse 18, describes Jesus as the only begotten who is in where? The bosom of the Father. Now that word, as I was, uh, was noted by a student of mine in a, in a paper, it was very insightful. Actually, was a word of intimacy, closeness. N.T. Wright translates this. He was close to the Father. The word actually also can be translated lapel. Jesus was in the lapel of the Father. A term of intimacy. A term of closeness. And then my student observed that that same word is used only one other place in John's Gospel, chapter 13, 23, where he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, resting where? On the bosom, on the lapel of Jesus. I mean, there was some deep male esprit de corps and bonding going on. And whether you think of the fire of God's love as this suitor for his beloved, or the compassion that Jesus had for people, or some kind of deep bonding, whether it's a, a huge bear hug or a gentle drawing touch, the fire of God's love. And that fire, that passion in God and in us can never be reduced solely to feelings. But it cannot exist without them. Indeed, passion is comprised of God's deepest allegiances, our deepest allegiances, and relationships, desires, strongly held values. And what makes us who we are? What makes God who God is? So whether we think of God as wildly admiring us or compassionate to us in our weakness and brokenness or wanting to be close to his lapel, these are all elements of the fire of God's love. The fire of God's love in us is really captured very much by the great commandment that uh, John mentioned earlier. We know that from age 12 and onwards, devout Jewish boys in their first awakening moments would repeat Deuteronomy 4, 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, 
uh, with all your soul. It didn't, interestingly enough, include mind in Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy. But it does with all your might or strength. That's what they would repeat. And Jesus is now taking the Shema, this fundamental, central commission, the uh, confession of Israel, and turning it into the great commandment. He not only began his morning praying that, he ended it just before he went to sleep. I would suggest that he did what we need today with the collapse of space and time. That the first part of that recitation, he listened in quiet. He knew the psalmist said to be still and know that I am God. He knew that the Lord was in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silent. He knew that Yahweh wanted to personally address and assure Jewish boys that they were loved and that there was a purpose and that Yahweh would direct them. We find in Jesus' response to the lawyer when asked, what's the greatest commandment, repeats the Shema as the first commandment. And then he says and adds to it, and the second is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he redefined neighbor as including all the wrong people, the marginalized, the Gentiles, the half-breeds, those who were prostitutes, those who were turncoat tax collectors. Jesus was doing something profound with the rhythms of first century Israel. And so, I want to talk briefly about the quenching of the fire. You see, the fire within Judaism had been quenched. They were not the blessing to the nations. They were not the light on the hill that Yahweh had called them to be and what he had called them in Abraham and promised that they would be. And so Jesus was doing something very fundamental with what was going on with those practices. I would argue that a spiritual practice has absolutely no value at all unless it opens me and you and us to the fire of God's love. I think Jesus would argue that the practices of first century Judaism had gotten to a place in, among most in which they were actually a barrier to God and keeping God at bay and others as well. I think we find in Jesus 
this amazing redefinition of spiritual practices. Scott McKnight, McKnight says something very similar in his book, The Jesus Creed, of what he did with, what Jesus did with the Shema. I would argue that our spiritual practices, individually and as a community, will always over time go off track and become hindrances rather than means and vehicles of the love of God. And so, the question I think I want to pose to myself and I offer to you is in what ways are your practices today a means of experiencing God and God's love for you and for others? And in what place are they simply wooden? At what, in what ways have they become dead? I would suggest that the collapse of space and time has done a lot to rob us and quench the fire. Eleven years ago, my father, who was a scientist all of his life in the field of X-ray crystallography, he happened to write the primary text, co-author of the primary text, or the first uh, text in the field, and was being awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award by the American Crystallographic Association. He's no longer with us. But his last words after he had given his lecture to this association, his last words addressed what this collapse was doing in his estimation to the scientific endeavor. And these are his words. So now we live in a technological age, computers of unprecedented capacity, and speed and almost instantaneous communication with colleagues anywhere in the world. Wonder what he'd say now with all this explosion of the social media. He voiced concern that the frenetic pace of so much research today results in undue stress that can be detrimental in human terms. Cardiac psychology, I, don't need, I didn't, wasn't even aware there was such a subspecialty in psychology, has identified three levels of time pathologies, the most serious of which is called hurry sickness. There's a whole profile about it, and it's been shown to be a risk factor for cardiac episodes. Hurry sickness is the ongoing sequence of activities and, and, and tasks without enough space in between to tend relationships with God's self and others. And so relationships suffer. Underlying these pathologies, they've, under, they've seen certain worldviews, unstated beliefs and assumptions, one of which is, I am what I do. That's almost a, an American cultural icon that we all live with. Another, I'm not permitted to relax until I'm finished or exhausted. 
And so God has given a Sabbath rest, hasn't he? And indeed, that's one of the great gifts, I think, of God to his people, to have spaces to actually rest and to do nothing because that's not who we really are, what we do. Pace of life studies have shown that in the last 15 years, the pace of life globally has increased by, by 10%. And we all feel it. We all experience it. Michelle Ritterman is a, a, a psychologist, a family therapist, who's really, really concerned about the effects of this and has written this uh, statement in an article called Stopping the Clock. It had been one of those days both too short to get everything done that needed doing and far too long, grueling, losing the race against the clock. I returned after seeing my last client and began throwing dinner together while my eight-year-old son, who had spent the day in the school kid version of the rat race, played an alarmingly fast-fingered game of Nintendo in the living room. Now, she wrote this in 1995, so that's ancient history in terms of technology, isn't it? So you can just uh, do all, replace it with all the current technology. Through the accelerated staccato of the game's bleeps, chirps, and tiny electronic music, he yelled at me impatiently, When will dinner be ready? Thirty seconds, I barked back. At the, I barked back, looking at the microwave dial. That's too long, exploded the child of the nanosecond generation. That's it. I exploded. I yanked the microwave plug from the wall, picked up the bulky thing in my arms, staggered out the back door to the garbage can where I dumped it. Healthy choice macaroni and cheese, dinner still inside. Back in the house, I looked at my son standing in the kitchen, staring wide-eyed at his suddenly crazed mother and said, the next time you ask, it will be two hours. We're going to eat like normal people from now on. We're going to have a life around here again. Then I cut up a large pile of vegetables and steamed them with rice at a mercilessly slow pace. (laughs) How do we pray with fire in such a context? After the final worship set, I'm going to lead you in the prayer that you all prayed together last week, the prayer of our Lord. And I'm going to intersperse it with periods of silence. And I want to illustrate how you can do one practice that you all know. You all know verses of Scripture. You can do the same thing with Scriptures. It's the silence. It's the silence that lets us know that God exists. When we look at Jesus, in the Luke's version of the Mark passage, we see this description. Jesus prayed all night. It says he spent the night praying to God And when morning came, 
he called his disciples. What do you do with big decisions, and especially decisions about people? People that you're connected to. People that God is calling you to. People that God is raising up. He called them, and they became a community. Out of communion with God comes depth of community. And then they went together down and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea. From Jerusalem, from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him. Jesus' pattern of communion, community, and then his mission. That's how the fire is spread. If you will just stand with me now, I want to commission us all to spread the fire. In the name of the risen Christ, at the right hand of the Father, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I commission you, and I want to use these words of Jesus, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, Jesus, Jesus is sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Amen. As morning dawns and evening fades, you inspire songs of praise that rise from earth to touch your heart and glorify your name, your name is a strong and mighty tower, your name. Is a shelter like no other, your name. Let the nation sing it louder, cause nothing has the power to save. It's your Jesus, in your name we pray, come and fill our hearts today, Lord, give us strength to live for you.
the strong and mighty tower. Your name is a shelter like no other. Your name, let the nations sing it louder. Cause nothing has the power to save Like your name Is a strong and mighty tower Your name Is a shelter like no other Your name Let the nation sing it louder Cause nothing has the power to save your name. Like your name, your name, like your name, like your name, your name. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. on earth even as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts even as we forgive our debtors And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.